Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Today, Ron Joyce, president and CEO of Joyce Farms, joins us to discuss how their company is working with farmers using regenerative agriculture to grow, as Ron says, flavorful meat. And just as important, he's listening to chefs and customers who are asking for these quality products. Ron is quick to point out that there's more to regenerative agriculture than just planting a cover crop or going organic. He and his team are working closely with farmers, choosing the right genetics, protecting animal welfare, and implementing the best soil health practices to produce that flavorful meat. Ron's passion for his work is very evident, and there's so much to glean from today's discussion. So let's jump right in. Welcome to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm really blessed to be joined by Ron Joyce today. Uh, he is the chairman, president, and CEO of Joyce Farms out of North Carolina. And Ron, thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, this whole journey that I've been on has become a passion for me. And, yeah. and, and I've been blessed to have found something like this that I have a passion for because years ago when we were in the distribution business and basically distributing commodity products, there was a time when I uh, really didn't enjoy coming to work. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I knew I had to make some changes. I wanted to make some changes for me from a professional standpoint and, and from a motivational standpoint and also uh, to try to make some changes in the industry. So uh, I'm one of those lucky people that looks forward to going to work every day. Well, I don't think there's any such thing as luck. I think you make your own luck, and I think you've done that very well. So you hit it right there at the, at the beginning uh, of what we really want to focus on today, and that's uh, what, what you can do to make farming fun again. But I do want you to talk about your journey and uh, how you uh, were trying to stay away from the farm, and, they, and it pulled you back. See how that worked? But uh, talk about uh, growing up on the farm and your, your dad and his business and going to college and, and just that journey that you've been on here, uh, kind of full circle. Okay. Well, um, my dad, when he was growing up, lived in the city and felt that he was fortunate because his parents sent him to spend a good part of the summer each year, uh, to an aunt and uncle's farm in Mount Airy, North Carolina, not too far from Winston-Salem. So he had several summers experience of living on a farm and, Fortunately, uh, my father felt very strongly that he wanted his children to have the same experience. So uh, when I was probably 12 years old, he bought a small farm, about 35 acres outside of town. And at that time, we, we raised vegetables and we had horses uh, that we, we enjoyed as a family pastime. So... Um, I was the oldest in the family, so I was responsible. Uh, we, he, he wanted uh, 
he wanted a cow for milk because he thought that was a, a great experience for children to understand where food came from. We raised vegetables in the garden. Milk comes from a cow. Butter comes from milk that's churned, that we churned ourselves. So we, you know, I really had a unique experience that most uh, people don't have in learning some of the things that he learned from being on his uh, aunt and uncle's farm. Uh, my mother grew up on a farm in Wilkes County, so she was familiar with this. But uh, being the oldest, I was the one tasked with, once we got the milk cow, of doing the milking every morning before school. So you, and, you were uh, the lucky one. I can tell you. <laughs> that, that is an experience in, in and of itself, uh, especially in January, February, when it's below freezing and uh, you're going down to a barn and, and uh, uh, you know, milking a cow. Uh, and of course, we did it by hand. So I, I went through that experience, uh, summer uh, vegetables with uh, tomatoes, cucumbers, potatoes, and all the things that uh, he wanted to grow for our family. But things got out of control when he bought a red belly Ford tractor. He could turn more dirt, plow, which we don't do now. But uh, uh, we, we had more vegetables coming out of that garden than we could possibly use. And and we tried to sell some locally. We gave some to neighbors and relatives. And unfortunately, a lot of it was wasted uh, because we overproduced. <clears throat> but yes, I'll never forget that experience growing up. Um, my dad started a distribution business. He had worked for a company called Holly Farms, uh, which was a poultry processing company uh, that was based in North Wilkesboro. They had a processing plant in Winston-Salem and was owned by the Lovett family. And so he got started in poultry working for them. And then later for the distribution part of, of Holly Farms that was uh, located in Winston-Salem. Uh, and so he decided at, at uh, about 1961 and finally made the move in 1962 to become a distributor himself. And he bought one truck and um, uh, he uh, actually started buying chickens from a processing plant in nearby Dobson, North Carolina, and started a local route and, and started selling to primarily grocery stores, uh, a few restaurants. So that's how the company got started, uh, with one guy and a truck. Um, and it grew. And uh, by the time I graduated from college, um, he had three trucks. And um, he asked me, to help him set up an accounting system. And uh, of course I knew everything there was to know about that because I had a degree in business with a concentration in accounting, but I did at least know what some of the problems were that he was experiencing. Um, as he put it to me, well, my CPA doesn't like me bringing everything to him in a box at the end of the year to file our taxes. And, and our CPA really thinks that we need to start looking at monthly financial statements and which he thought, you know, he didn't see much need for. Uh, his accounting system was a spiral notebook and he kept very good records. And it was basically a cash flow network uh, notebook. Uh, he knew what he took in each week. He knew what he spent for product. He knew what he spent for expenses and what was left over was profit. And there was nothing being depreciated, nothing set up uh, the way a standard accounting system would be set up. I, I had that notebook for a while, and I thought it was interesting that 
he had a huge loss one week. I mean, a multi-thousand dollar loss one week because he deducted the price of a new truck. Uh, and, and, you know, he bought the truck that week. He paid for it that week, or fin I think he financed it at the bank, but, but basically uh, it showed as a negative. So uh, that was the way our accounting system was. And I did help set up an accounting system. Uh, my mom actually took some accounting courses at a local uh, uh, a school, uh, a tech school, and uh, she became our, our accountant. And I had promised him, since he had helped me through school and paid for most of my education, that I would give him one year and I would try to set this accounting system up. I knew I didn't want to spend my, my life and my career in accounting. I had some other ideas of what I wanted to do. But while I was there and his business was growing, he'd gone from one truck to three, um, I got interested in the sales side of the business and the selling and building relationships and looking at the business strategically. Um, I started uh, becoming aware that his customer base, which was small independently owned grocery stores, were kind of being pushed out of the way by the larger uh, corporately owned grocery stores. And that, um, you know, that business might be vulnerable. <clears throat> At the same time, I saw a guy from Kentucky develop this uh, recipe for fried chicken. And his name was Colonel Sanders. And he, uh, he franchised people all over the country. But we had a franchise owner in our area, actually three, one in Winston-Salem, one in High Point, one in uh, Greensboro. <clears throat> and... They, uh, I started talking to them because I was amazed at how much volume they were running through these little small, small places. Now, interestingly enough, and, and uh, uh, that the, these people, most of the people that bought these franchises had some business background and some business experience. So when they decided to open a, a restaurant, a, a KFC restaurant, they went to their bank who they had a relationship with, and they applied for a loan, which makes sense. The problem was the banks wouldn't loan them money. And, and I've talked to several of the franchisees back in that time uh, because they became hugely successful. Uh, but the banks, one question was, what are you going to sell in this new restaurant? We're going to sell fried chicken. And what else? Mashed potatoes and coleslaw and, and bread. And what else? That's it. And the bank paradigm. said, that is the craziest, most foolish thing I've ever heard of. We're not going to finance a restaurant that only sells fried chicken. <laughs> so the banks would say, would turn their request down. <clears throat> and I don't know if anybody listening remembers this back in the probably 70s, early 70s. Uh, a lot of these Kentucky fried chicken stores opened up in closed gas stations. They would find a small biz, uh, building where the overhead was really cheap because they're going to have to cash flow this out of their pockets. And there was no such thing as building a new store. So uh, they opened up, uh, you know, a, a KFC store in, in a lot of these small buildings around that were just empty and, and vacant. And the business grew so rapidly that pretty soon these guys didn't need the banks to finance expansion. And we all know the history of fast food and, so I started talking to those guys and um, uh, having a little bit of sales experience working through college. Uh, 
I had learned early on to ask, what would you like to have that you can't get now from your supplier? I'm in the chicken business. Well, we'd like a chicken without a neck and a giblet. We sell livers, we sell gizzards, but we don't sell necks. And uh, we don't sell as many livers and gizzards as we sell chicken. So we'd like to be able to buy the chicken, which we call today a wog, uh, uh, without the uh, without the giblets. The processing plant that we dealt with at that time said, you tell those people, because basically a processing plant did whole birds and they would cut the downgrades back then. And, and to get cut up, it was usually just the downgrades because they'd rather sell a whole chicken. <clears throat> but you tell those people that every chicken we grow has a neck, a liver, and a gizzard. And if they want a chicken, they're going to get those with it. So I talked to my dad and I said, well, I don't think that's the answer they're looking for. So our first further processing activity was bringing in whole chickens, pulling the jibs out, and then eventually starting to size them because the, the portion control and sizing the birds was, was important to them. And fortunately for us, the big guys really didn't pay attention to this business. Uh, you know, they were mostly focused on the grocery store business. So while the larger players in the industry are focused on that, we started focusing on fast food. And um, the next thing the guys came to us and asked for is they were cutting chickens, believe it or not, in the store, in the restaurant, in the back of the restaurant uh, with these circular saws. And they said, our volume is getting to the point that it doesn't make sense for us to do this. So you got us a chicken without a giblet. Can you do our nine piece cut? Now, back in the early days, KFC used a nine piece instead of an eight piece cut. Well, again, the plants didn't want to do this because they were doing an eight piece cut. They didn't see the need to do a nine piece cut. <clears throat> and they would say, well, tell these, convince these people they need to buy an eight piece cut. And anybody knows the history of fast food and KFC, the Colonel was pretty stubborn. Um, so they made a deal with us. They said, we will sell you our saws that we're using in the stores. You find a place in your plant, your little distribution building, and we'll help train your people, but we want to buy the chickens cut up. Now that sounds crazy today, but the, the, the larger players in the poultry industry did not want to do a nine piece cut. And when I looked around the country, most of these fast food people were buying from distributors because not directly from a large company because the distributors were willing to do the cutting and pull the giblets out. So, so that's actually how we got uh, into, into further processing. <clears throat> so fast forward years later, the large companies realized that they had really missed an opportunity and they wanted to be in the fast food business. And, and some of them we were competing with are the giants in the industry today. And when they decided they wanted an area, they would come in and basically buy it. You know, we, we fought competition from some of the larger companies uh, selling below cost. I mean, I couldn't buy it at market, cut it, do the things I had to do with it, and then sell it at a profit because these guys were coming in basically selling below what my cost was. So... <clears throat> I saw the handwriting on the wall. We started making some changes uh, in our plant. Our plant had grown by that time. We started doing some deboning and uh, some other things that the plants weren't doing at the time. You know, back in those days, a processing plant basically sold a whole chicken. And the butcher at the grocery store would take it apart and cut it up into the parts. Or the chef or the restaurant 
would cut it in the back of the restaurant. Uh, very different than it is today. So we saw a need that wasn't being filled by the large companies. And that created a very nice business for us at the time. But I saw that business being threatened by the larger companies coming in. So that's when I started looking around for other parts of the chicken business, primarily is what, what all we were doing at the time, that whose needs weren't being fulfilled. And I found that chefs, uh, even back then, were having starting to have some labor problems, starting to have some turnover problems. And some of the things that they would like to have done that they were doing in their kitchens, uh, they were having a, a harder and harder problem doing this with their own employees. So we started cutting French press, hand-cut French press, uh, size, portion controlled um, chicken breast, and doing a lot of things that's kind of, that are kind of common today, but were very unique in, in those days. And I think the one thing it taught me, well, the two things it taught me was find out what the need is that isn't being filled by the big guys and do it and do it very well. And, and you build a brand and a loyalty and repeat business. And plus, so that's kind of the, the history. <clears throat> and plus, once you learned what they did want, and eventually the big boys did copy you, then you went on and looked for the next thing. You didn't just stop there. Wasn't and we it? did. I mean, you reinvented yourself just in that, that portion of the story several times. And uh, that, that's interesting. And I mean, that's, that's the, the beauty of a smaller business is we can, we can do those things and, and give people what they want. Yeah, well, that's true. And in this business, you better have somewhat of an entrepreneurial spirit to survive. I mean, I've had many friends over the years who were in the distribution business or were doing similar things to what we were doing. And for whatever reason, they were just slow to adapt or didn't adapt. And unfortunately, they're not around anymore. <laughs> so I started talking to the chefs. We started doing products for the chefs. And I got to know the customers, the end user very well. And somewhere along this uh, progression, some of the, uh, the chefs who had been to Europe, traveled in Europe, trained in Europe, or came from Europe, started mentioning a La Belle Rouge chicken. <clears throat> we, we kind of prided ourselves in, in having the highest quality, best chicken in America. And they kind of challenged me to look at this. And I had no idea what it was. I didn't know if it was a breed, if it was a company. Uh, or what it, what uh, La Belle Rouge was. And as I studied it, I realized that it was a program that the French government put in place as the poultry industry started becoming industrialized. Uh, the, some of the farmers in France being somewhat stubborn and people in France being proud of their food and not just France, but a lot of countries in Europe, they said, we're not gonna grow this new faster growing chicken. We're not going to go to this new program. We're going to keep growing the breeds that we've always grown. My dad grew, my grandfather did, and we're going to maintain that heritage. <clears throat> so that's really what the, the La Belle Rouge program was about. My first trip to France, I went to a butcher shop before we went to a museum or anywhere else. I took my children there on spring break, and I was blown away, absolutely amazed at the diversity of product at a neighborhood butcher shop. Uh, I came from a country where all the chickens, regardless of what the, the label or company's name was on that box, they were all a 
a commercial white feathered Cornish cross that grew faster and faster and faster over, over the decades. And um, um, I, I looked at this variety and, and even with turkeys, we were at that time in the turkey business too, doing distribution. And I saw red feathered um, chickens. I saw black feathered chickens, white feathered, white and black feathered, all of them growing about uh, 82 to 80, 81 to 83 days to get to a, to a two and a half to three pound chicken. <clears throat> and at that time we were growing chickens to almost four pounds in what is now today about 42 days. So I was shocked. I was shocked at the diversity and I was shocked at the difference, the culinary attributes and the, the quality difference from an eating standpoint of this LaBelle Rouge chicken. And I, I became very interested. Um, so I had several failed attempts in trying to import that product into the United States. By the time I, I had it set up uh, through a, a market in uh, Ranji's to ship product from the uh, processing plant nearby, fly it over to Atlanta. We're, we're in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Easiest place to bring it in at that time was Atlanta. But by the time it went through customs and, and USDA and even, uh, I think, um, uh, Fish and Wildlife wanted to get involved in inspecting this product. I mean, the product would be spoiled by the time I could get my hands on it. So I realized that we weren't going to be able to do that. So there are a lot of twists and turns to this. I was told that the French Canadians had this breed in, in Canada. Uh, and I explored that and found out, well, no, they really didn't. They had chickens that instead of taking 81 days to grow were slower growing than the commercial Cornish cross, but it, they may grow in 56 days. So a little bit slower. And, and the point I want to make about the slow growth, the slower an animal grows, the more flavor it develops. So um, we've done a lot of things in our effort to try to feed the world at a, at a really low price with American agriculture. And I don't criticize that. I have no criticism for the industrial ag people. I don't particularly like it. I don't be a part of it. But the amazing thing they've done is produce a lot of food at a very low price. And they fed a lot of people. And they've made uh, protein, uh, meat and poultry protein, more affordable for more people. So I guess that's the po positive, the one positive thing that industrial agriculture has offered us. But I was amazed at the variety that was offered. And then I noticed really strange chickens in the counter that were called uh, kunu or naked neck. It was a breed that came from an even more tropical environment than most chickens. And they, they had no feathers growing on their neck and very few feathers down on the front of their breast. And I started inquiring about this and I said, well, it was something that nature helped them evolve over time with a very thin skin, they could dissipate heat quicker and they could tolerate more heat but from a culinary standpoint and when you talk to a french chef <clears throat> they admired these birds and they were kind of considered the best of the la belle rouge because this gave a very thin skin the skin of these naked neck birds is probably half the thickness of the of a regular chicken and the slower growing the other thing that i noticed is with the slower growth the fat has time to metabolize and become a part of the meat, be uh, marbleized into the meat, mm. which gives it its flavor. 
Whereas today with the faster growing commercial breeds, you pull the skin back and all the fats deposited under the skin. And that, that's a change that I noticed. So, interesting. so I got very interested in this crazy, expensive, thin skinned, slow growing La Belle Rouge chicken. And, uh, you know, fast forward to today, we, we've been the only company that's imported those genetics to the United States. Fascinating. It's, uh, it's quite a, uh, quite a story there pursuing really the opposite of what the industry is pursuing, you know, to shorten the days and improve feed efficiency and, and lean meat, right? We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show. I've, I've spent a lot of time talking about the history, and I know that's not what we're here to talk about, but having unique products has been kind of the thing we've always looked for and filling a demand. <clears throat> so we imported the, um, the La Belle Rouge chicken, which we named the Poulet Rouge, uh, giving it a French name. And while I was there, I discovered the Pintad, which is a, a French guinea. And the French and Italians have perfected this. It's not the same guinea that we have running around on American farms. Believe me, I learned the, uh, the, the hard way and I paid a, a high price for the education. I grew those birds because my chef customers were telling me that they wanted to do a guinea fowl. So no problem. We started raising them on the farms that we'd contracted with, couldn't sell them. So uh, it wasn't the same bird that they had been used to in Europe. So with the same company that was supplying the, uh, the Poulet Rouge genetics, we started, there was a company importing the uh, Guinea uh, genetics and we started growing those. And it is an unbelievably delicious bird. And we've tried to integrate that into uh, the market here. Haven't been as successful as I would like, but, um, in Europe, it's a, it's a specialty bird, a celebratory bird. It's something that you do for special occasions. And I don't know if the numbers have changed. They may have, but at one time, France was consuming a half a million of these birds a year. And they're relatively unknown here. So, and, and one of the things we followed with this process is, is we had to do the processing in our plant um, uh, in order to, to make this program work. So we followed the La Belle Rouge guidelines, including air chilling. And we do our own, uh, our own air chilling on racks, just like they're done in France. They're not running on a line, being sprayed with uh, uh, chlorinated water and, and other water to try to help cool them down. We actually do it the same way it's done in France. So we've got a bird that's the same as, as what you would find in a La Belle Rouge bird in France. And, what that taught me was the importance of genetics. The two key differences with Joyce Farms is our genetic selection. We have what we think we have found the best breeds of animals in the world. We produce those same genetics over and over and over, which gives us a consistency that nobody else has. Uh, when you look at beef producers and pork producers, 
particularly beef, when the large companies, and as you know, beef is not integrated like pol the poultry companies are, uh, they buy cattle from various feedlots. And those feedlots buy cattle from farmers all over the country. And there's all kinds of genetics involved in that. And I met Dr. Alan Williams in the early 2000s, about the time we were launching our, our Poulet Rouge program. And he had isolated and helped preserve the old Aberdeen Angus genetics, which is the original Angus that was produced by Hugh Watson back in the 1840s in Aberdeen, Scotland, which is why we call it the Aberdeen Angus. Uh, Alan Williams is a, is a geneticist. That's what his training is, is in. And uh, so he has been able to trace the breed that he selected and preserved actually for another company uh, that was getting in the grass-fed business at the time that no longer exists. And so when this company was having a problem staying in business, he came to me and said, I think you ought to look at getting in the beef business. And I resisted at first, but he said, look, I have spent years researching and finding these pockets of Aberdeen Angus cattle that do extremely well on grass and produce very high quality. And he was able to trace our genetics back to old jock, which was Hugh Watson's registration number one, the first bull registered. So, so we've got authentic, I like to call them original old world genetics in our cattle program. Um, a big thing at the time was natural. Everybody wanted natural. Of course, that, that label has been overused and misused so many times. It's kind of lost favor with me. But the thinking that I had at the time was, and, and Dr. Williams and I had a lot of conversations about this, if cattle naturally graze and live on forages and grasses, why are we feeding them corn? Well, and the reason is the same with everything else. It's cheaper. You can produce higher quality, higher, better marbled meat at a much lower price and finish the animals much faster. So again, it was cost driven. And my thinking was, well, if cattle are naturally supposed to eat forages, wouldn't we be able to produce a better product doing it naturally from start to finish? And Alan's answer at the time was, I think we can do just as well. And again, the chefs who always get me in trouble came to me and said, have you looked at doing grass-fed cattle? You know, our customers are looking for grass-fed beef. The problem is I bring it in from a local supplier wherever they're located and my customers ask for it, but when I cook it and serve it, they don't like it because it's tough. It has all flavors. And, and it's not a very good eating experience. Although people say they want it, they don't want it once it's cooked and on their plate. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I'm happy to say that after years and years of working on the forages and, and, and changing the farming of growing these animals and, and tweaking the genetics, improving the genetics a little bit, uh, each year by, by selection with, with uh, animals that do the best on, on grass. We've, we've gone exactly in the opposite direction to the industry. Uh, instead of working on more toward corn fed, we've never used corn uh, in, in our product. So, you know, people tell me that they really like what we've done with our animal welfare, what we've done with uh, uh, our regenerative program. And I always confess to them and say, this was not my original intention. My intention, as with the uh, Poulet Rouge, 
was the best tasting, best flavor that I could find in the world. Same thing with the cattle. I wanted the best steak that could possibly be uh, produced. And I believed at the time that if we did it completely naturally, like nature, I hate to say nature intended, but in harmony with nature, in fact, we call our program Honest with Nature, uh, that we should be able to, to produce cattle that were grass and forage fed and were actually better than corn fed. And <clears throat> I can now say before, we used to say this is the best grass fed beef you'll ever eat. I now say this is the best beef you'll ever eat. Uh, because working with Dr. Williams and his people over the years and some very, very knowledgeable farmers and ranchers, uh, we've been able to get to this point. But the goal was to produce the flavor. And what we learned through this process is the importance of genetics, but then the importance of animal welfare. The better these animals are cared for, the better meat you're going to produce. So the, the high standards in animal welfare came about as our pursuit of flavor. And then the regenerative was the same thing. In order to produce the best and most flavorful animal, we had to have forages that were diverse, not a monoculture, not just grass, not a local grass like a fescue, but we, we now plant about 18 or more different species of plants in the pastures. And we have cool season and, and warm season. And we rotate the cattle. There's a very uh, defined managed plan on uh, and moving these cattle. And I just realized that we were in the regenerative. We were, we were a part of regenerative agriculture, a thing that was kind of taking over. And again, I didn't do it to be, you know, to, to get into regenerative agriculture so I could hang another tag or label on my product. I was going for flavor. And, and unfortunately, in this meat and poultry business, raised without antibodies, and by the way, we are the first one of the first companies to offer poultry raised without antibodies. I take that back. I learned that we weren't. <laughs> At the time we introduced chicken being raised without antibiotics, everybody was using routine antibiotics as a preventative. What I learned is in the early, early days, nobody used antibiotics. In fact, you were kind of frowned upon if you had to use antibiotics because it meant there was something with your biosecurity or your farming methods and it cost money. Nobody wanted to use antibiotics because it was expensive. So we're really going back to the old days of, of raising animals without antibiotics. Uh, and, and we've learned a lot of things about that. You know, uh, first of all, particularly with the Poulet Rouge, it's an old world heritage breed that's hardier. Uh, it's not as susceptible to disease. But you give the birds a lot more room in the house and you give them room outside for roaming and they're not crowded and they're not put into a situation that is conducive for disease. So we don't have to give them antibiotics. So, so <clears throat> back to the cattle. What we learned is that by developing a high degree of animal welfare, which we, we are using global animal partnership. Our, our poultry and our, our beef are, are step four, which is one of the highest steps. And with the pork, it's AWA. But we pay particular attention to animal welfare. And we want the animals to be grown in an environment that is conducive to their health and well-being. And that actually gives us a better meat. So through the pursuit of flavor, we develop very high animal welfare standards. Through the pursuit of flavor, we found the importance of regenerative agriculture. 
where we wanted to give the most nutritious, uh, nutrient-dense forages and plants for these animals to eat in order to put the best tasting steak on the, on the plate. So, so yes, we're doing a great job, probably more so than anybody else uh, in the meat and poultry business on regenerative, but there was the, the pursuit was always flavor, producing the best piece of meat. And we've done that with our pork, the pork genetics when we started, it would have been very easy to start with a Duroc or a Berkshire or some of these other breeds. And again, Dr. Williams being a geneticist kind of helped us wade through that. And what we found is that there's probably no such thing as a Duroc or there's no such thing as a Berkshire that's pure anymore. Um, I remember having a Duroc pork chop in California uh, on a visit out there. And I asked the chef about it because it was so good. I'd never tasted a pork chop like that in my life. And he said, well, a local farmer was raising some Duroc pigs and he thought it was pretty good. So he started buying the meat from them. And for a couple of years after that, maybe several years after that, I, um, when I saw Duroc on the menu, I would order it and I would usually be disappointed because it didn't measure up. And there were so many inconsistencies in what a Berkshire or a Duroc pork tastes like. And I just realized there was no consistency in the genetics. So when we started with the pork, we decided, again, we felt our opinion, we might be wrong, but we felt that um, the best flavor, the best marbling, the best um, um, uh, fat concentration in the meat uh, was, was produced by the old spot, the English pig from Gloucestershire called the old spot. Um, and the problem was we couldn't find them. So we finally located a few and we started a line breeding program that Dr. Williams developed with for us. And so we have now our own bloodline of old spot pigs that are at about the hundred percent mark. And that took several years to do. So we have our own, you know, we've identified the bloodline for our cattle the bloodline for the La Belle Rouge uh, chicken and, and guinea comes from France. And the same thing now with the pork. So our, our genetics are solid week in and week out. Then the grow out and the finishing has to be the same. So the farms that do this for us have to comply with our standards for uh, finishing the animals, for raising and finishing the animals. So pork program is relatively new. We're getting some great results. Uh, the intermuscular fat that we're getting on these pigs is amazing and it produces amazing meat. <clears throat> and again, I was going for flavor and something that would, that would satisfy the most discriminating chefs rather than uh, lowest cost or volume. And as you probably know, and your audience may know that years ago in an effort to compete with chicken, we, the pork industry bred most of the fat out of the pigs and they became the other white meat. So you produce a pig that has very little fat, you're going to have very little flavor. And, and you know, they're not going to be very moist. So what we were excited to find in these old uh, versions of the old spot was fat comes back. In fact, we have a t-shirt that says bringing fat back and <clears throat> the, the putting fat back in the port. Talk to Dr. David, uh, Dana Hansen at NC State who's a food scientist, and he had an interesting summer trip when he went to Spain to study the Iberico breed. 
and what makes the Iberico ham so special. And he came back and told me, because I was thinking, you know, we've got this great pig that's great flavor and marbling really well, developing a lot of intramuscular fat. What if we did a cured ham? And I wanted to be able to produce a ham in America that was at least as good as what they were producing in Spain. Spain, the Iberico's kind of set the world standard. So um, uh, Dr. Hansen spent time in Spain studying this and studying the curing process and what made this so successful. And I was concerned about the acorns and the oak trees and all of this. And he said, well, the acorns are a good source of fat. But the main thing is this pig yields very highly marbled meat. And you've got to have that higher level of fat in the meat to cure it for long periods of time. You know, you may know there are very few hams cured in this country for more than a year. So I wanted to go to at least two years and maybe longer. So we pulled our first hams out at a year and we were really, really happy. So I said, we're taking them to 18 months and we took them to 18 months and we liked it even better. So we took them to 24 months and we've just released our first 24 month hams and <clears throat> excuse me, our cure master explaining this to me in, 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 in not in scientific terms, but basically at some point you'll run out of fat. You know, you will, you will cure this ham so long and go so far that it'll become hard. And, and, but we're, we're approaching 30 months now and we're not there yet. So uh, the guy that's doing the curing was surprised that this ham did so well at 24 months. And he had told me not to try to go longer than that. But, you know, the entrepreneur every now and then, you know, pops out and, and I said, well, we got to try it. So we're waiting now to pull our first 30 month samples out. So anyway, that's kind of from the start as a distributor of commodity chicken to where we are today. Well, it's absolutely fascinating because it's always been a focus on what the customer wants, doing the best right. and, and then also differentiating yourselves, providing things that others just aren't willing to focus on. So, I, you know, one of the things that really stands out to me, you mentioned you had the accounting emphasis in your business degree and you got the entrepreneur spirit. There has to be, talk to me about that dynamic going on of the entrepreneur and the accountants in the same body there fighting each other with this 24-month, 36-month ham, these chickens that take, you know, 83 days, the grass-fed and finished cattle that take 24 to 28 months versus 16 to 18 oh, months. Yeah, about this, this is a cash flow nightmare, and I, I'm, I'm wondering uh, what, kind of a, what kind of a dynamic you got going on there with the accounting background and, and cash flow management and the entrepreneur wanting to create the right product. That's an interesting question. Um, that I wasn't prepared to answer. So off, off the top of my head, I would have to say one success leads to another success. We didn't get into the beef business until we were seeing some success with the LaBelle Rouge chicken program. And the, the, the grass-fed beef program was a five-year process before we got it to profitability. Um, when we started that program, I said, I'll give it two years and I'll invest. I don't like to think about lose. I, I, I I've been reminded that and that's an investment in, in the program you're developing. So we invested. I set an amount of money that we would invest. And if we weren't successful by that time, we'd end the program. <clears throat> but 
we lost more money, almost double. We invested double the money in the beef program that we had intended originally. But what was happening is, although it wasn't profitable for us, the reaction that I was getting from the chefs on the quality and the eating experience of this this cat, these cattle being 100% grass-fed encouraged me to keep going. So we minimized, we were able to gradually minimize our losses. And we learned some very important lessons that everybody gets in the cattle business has to learn sooner or later. And it wasn't that the product wasn't good enough, but it is critically important to balance the carcass. You know, we were kind of the opposite of a lot of the grass-fed guys who have a hard time selling their middle meats because a lot of them don't make great steaks. We were oversold on our middle meats, but that doesn't matter. If you're not selling the trim, if you're not selling the ground beef, if you're not selling the thin meats, you've got to sell everything. It doesn't matter what you get for ribeyes. You can, you can get a great price for ribeyes and strips and, and end up losing a lot of money on that whole animal. So that was another, that's where the accounting side kind of came in. Um, and I think the feedback that I kept getting from chefs that I trusted to tell me I've never tasted anything like that. And, and now when we, when we started with the pork program, we processed the first animals as a test. If I get, well, this is pretty good, we're probably not going to do it. But the feedback I'm looking for on anything new we do now from really, really hard to please discriminating chefs has to be wow. And when I get wow as an answer, then that green lights and that pushes the accountant away. <laughs> the entrepreneur overdoes the accountant every day, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> that is awesome. And, uh, you know, give listeners a little bit of an idea of, of uh, the markets that you are servicing. It, it's, a, it's a wide area. We have distribution. Well, we had great distribution momentum going uh, before COVID. We're all the way to Maine and New England and all the way south to uh, the Caribbean and uh, mostly concentrated in the southeast. But we do have uh, customers in uh, Missouri and we have a few on the west coast. So but basically, if you drew a line from uh, Cleveland to St. Louis to New Orleans, down the Caribbean and back up to Maine, that's that that's our entire area for the most part. I, I do want to say something, though, that that. I mentioned that when we first got approached about this, and I think it will go well if we're okay on time with your, your audience. Being in the meat and poultry business, I'm kind of getting tired of hearing about we need to get rid of meat. We need to quit eating meat. We need to quit producing meat to save the world. Well, I'm a little agitated and aggravated that a minority 5% or less of the, of the public in the United States feels this way. I have nothing against vegetarians. I have nothing against vegans. I guess I'm a, a patriot in heart, uh, meaning that you should be able to choose to eat and eat whatever you want to. We don't need it dictated by the government. Uh, I'm not a soft uh, drink uh, uh, consumer, but if I want a 32 ounce Coke, I ought to be able to get a 32 ounce Coke and make my own decisions. So I don't think the government should be telling us what to eat. I certainly don't think somebody that doesn't eat meat needs to tell me not to eat meat. I think that's a choice that I get to make, whether I want to be a vegetarian or whether I want to be an omnivore or, or carnivore. But um, 
So it's bothered me. I remember the meatless Mondays that got pushed for a while. But really what bothers me the most now that we've been on this journey is the, the fake news <clears throat> that meat is bad for our health. Well, it absolutely isn't. That's a lie. As a matter of fact, if you say quit eating meat and only eat plants and vegetables, a lot of our plants and vegetables are grown with Roundup Ready, and they contain glyphosate, which now we're getting all kinds of information that that's been one of the most uh, serious uh, negative impacts on human health that we've had in, in decades. But see, that's our, unfortunately, that's the world we live, live in today. Uh, people somewhere are wanting to cancel everything. You know, and, and I think, to be honest, people are getting tired of it. Um, I take offense to anybody wanting to cancel meat and poultry production because that's our livelihood and that's what we've always done. And that's what we do. <clears throat> but I like to tackle it head on. Their reasons are uh, meat is not good for our health. Well, that is not that is absolutely not true. Diana Rogers, who's a registered dietitian and publisher of the book, uh, A Sacred Cow, and, and which she made into a movie, talks about the beneficial benefits of eating meat, um, even commercially produced meat. But if you produce meat responsibly and ethically, the health benefits can be huge, particularly when it comes to pasture-raised and grass-fed uh, beef. So I can knock that one out, that it's not good for our health. The second one is it's not good for our animals. Well, we have the highest animal welfare that exists in the country maybe even in the world, and we're proud of that. We're partners with uh, AWA and GAP, and on our GAP, we're at step four, which is one of their highest steps. So the animal welfare, I can, I can completely dispute that it's not good for our animals because our animals are treated very well. And the third thing is uh, it's not good for the environment. You know, meat production is bad for the environment. And my answer to that is, well, some meat production may be, but we're given a choice. Where are you sourcing your products? So if you're buying meat and poultry that's bad for your health, bad for the animals and bad for the environment, you're not only buying from the wrong sources, but you're supporting the wrong production systems and you're voting poorly with your dollars. So we are launching a program in September called Celebrate Meat. And Diana Rogers is, uh, is did a, a part of the video um, Ann Malo, who is the uh, chairman or uh, the, the director of GAP, is on there about animal welfare. And Finian Makepeace, who's a co-founder of Kiss the Ground, talks about the importance of integrating animals into regenerative agriculture. So um, I decided to quit talking about this myself and get some experts uh, on the video to, to start stating facts. And I want to turn this whole idea around and my purpose of this is to try to educate not only chefs, but the chef's customers and their guests. These chefs who've been buying our product and paying a higher price for it, for the most part, they're buying it because it eats well, it creates, we like to call them memorable meals, and, and it builds repeat business for the chef and helps make the chef profitable. But in addition to that, they need to tell the rest of the story. In addition to having a great meal, we're actually contributing positively to the environment, positively to the animals, positively to, uh, to our health, and we're contributing positively to the small farmer.
regenerative is the best thing that's ever happened to uh, small family farms. In the farm, with the farms in our history that we've converted, we have saved our farmers enough money that in a lot of cases, it's taken them from being uh, unprofitable to fairly uh, nicely profitable. And it comes through uh, better production, but it also comes from eliminating the uh, synthetic fertilizers, reducing and then eliminating. And this doesn't happen overnight. As you know, it takes a, a period of time. We eliminate chemicals and other inputs that we don't want to use on the farm. And we regenerate the soil by, by replacing carbon, repairing the topsoil. We improve water infiltration. So the farmer is not only not uh, contributing to the pollution that's going downstream, but he's also keeping his topsoil and not losing the topsoil. So regenerative has been one of the best things financially that we've been able to do for our farmers. And, and it's documented now. It's not a theory and it's not a white paper. Um, for small farms and small farmers to survive, they're going to have to be converted to, to regenerative. And for a producer like Joyce Farms, there's an upside to it in that we can produce better animals that taste better. So it's a win for everybody. I've seen that myself as the soil improves and meat improves. And uh, right. that's exciting. And it, and it locks in customers long term. It's what's best for everybody, the environment, the consumer, in your case, the, the restaurants and those kind of things. It, it's amazing. And, you know, really we approached regenerative farming, you know, we, we were doing many of the principles for 20 some years before really regenerative was a buzzword. And then, then we adopted all of the regenerative ag principles because it's really a system. It's a holistic approach. And now today, you and I have talked about this a little bit, but now today we see everybody claiming they're regenerative, you know, because maybe they have a pastured animal, but they're, they're still, you know, have all kinds of, uh, uh, additives to them, or, or maybe they're on pasture, but they're, they're fertilizing the heck out of the pasture, or they're not doing daily moves or, you know, those kind of things. Isn't that frustrating? I mean, uh, the problem is the consumer is trying to make a good informed choice and, and they're looking for those words. And then other people just kind of glom onto them and, and muddy the water. I mean, how do you make the packages big enough to, <laughs> to have all the, it, the labels it, on there? Or, or how do you get around that? It's well, educating. Educating our customer, and and we're a little we're a small company. We're about a hundred employees. So you know a lot of a, a lot of small farms would say, "Well, you're a huge company." Well, no, in the in the meat and poultry business, we are we are very very small. <clears throat> but um, I, I fought that all my life with all natural. Um, you know, all natural has been uh, and and as nature intended, has been misused and abused ever since the term came out. Uh, USDA didn't help much with the all-natural because their definition is nothing is added to the meat once it's processed. So what happens in the growth phase of that animal and how that animal is treated and what he's fed, uh, antibiotics or chemicals or whatever else, doesn't matter. It still can be labeled all-natural. Uh, organic has been one of the biggest ones that have been abused. You know, USDA, I guess, has never decided on a standard for that. So they leave the certifying bodies, leave it up to the certifying bodies. And if you look at most products, it's certified organic by, you know, 
whoever the group is. And then you have to go to that website to see what organic means. Um, the same thing is happening to regenerative. Uh, we've just had to, we've, we've been very frustrated with this. We've had to just push through the all natural. In fact, we don't even label our products all natural anymore because it's, it's so abused. Um, regenerative was great because nobody was using it when we started, but there are people who basically are composting and, and getting certified, actually certified by one of the, one of the groups that I was very disappointed in. We were seriously gonna, gonna use them but when I don't want to be compared to a farm that uses composting, my understanding, and maybe it's changed, but that this one group that, that does the certification measures the carbon in your soil every year. And as long as you're uh, building carbon in the soil, then you're good to go. You're certified. Well, to me, you got more legs on the stool than just building carbon. Where's that carbon coming from? You know, are you really truly doing a regenerative program where you're helping clean the air, where you're pulling CO2 out of the air and the plants through photosynthesis are converting that and putting the carbon back in the ground? Are you keeping cover crops or some living plant on the land all the time? Uh, our, our producer of the pork raises uh, corn and soybeans. And when the corn and soybeans are finished, when they're harvested, he uses a roller crimper and crushes that uh, organic matter down. And we use a no-till drill and drill right through that and plant the cover crop. So then the cover crop comes up, we run animals on that cover crop and uh, they, you know, their impact with their, their hooves, they aerate it, they, they fertilize, and they're eating that plant that's continuing to pump CO2 out of the air and put it in the ground as carbon. To me, that's vastly different than someone just proving that they're increasing the carbon. And there are a lot of regenerative farms out there today who are basically claiming that and even getting third party uh, certified by just composting. I think composting is great, mm -hmm. but it's not a total regenerative program. And I think uh, so. that's, that's one of the differences with regenerative versus organic. Organic's very input oriented. Uh, but regenerative is not only input oriented from a product standpoint, but also from a practice standpoint. And it's also outcome output oriented as far as, yes. you know, quality, nutrient density, uh, impact on carbon sequestration, all those kind of characteristics. So it's much, much uh, more complex. And I, I really think, uh, you know, you as your farm and then also other farmers really need to create a brand identity and a brand uh, trust uh, that when a person chooses Joyce Farms or they choose Grateful Grays or they choose Stemple Creek Ranch, any of these kind of folks that have been on our podcast, they know what they're getting because of that brand promise. So rather than you, you have, uh, it, it's a trust but verify uh, situation. So instead of hiding behind fake labels like all natural, I said it, not you, uh, you know, that, that's just a pure joke. Um, you know, that you have 30 part verification where you're doing with gap and also AWA and those kind of things, but they're trusting you. That's, yes. that's what they're buying. So, and, and that's really what we had to do to get around that is we sold our brand instead of some third party. I still think there is a, there, there, it will be a huge demand for a legitimate third party certification of regenerative and maybe 
I don't know, maybe you do it in phases or you do it in steps like gap. Whereas if all you're doing is composting, then you're a regenerative one. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing all the other steps, you move up the scale. But again, it takes education because the consumer and the chef has to understand what that third party means. I was very disappointed, may get in trouble for saying this, because I thought I had found the solution. Uh, with Together with Dr. Alan Williams, we wrote our regenerative farming protocols. And it's a pretty strict program. And it's, a not, it's not a strict program to just have a lot of words on a page. It's taking his years of research and the other research that we've, we've gone through and defined what works. And we, we have done, we've paid for the consulting for our farms, our farm partners to make this conversion because they thought we were crazy. Um, <clears throat> one of the farmers said, I'm gonna try this for a year. If you'll agree to come back in a year, and when I show you how much damage you've done to my farm, you'll let me go back to farming the way I always have. And so we shook hands and, and we made that deal. Well, he had progressed so much in that one year, he never wanted to go back. And he's one of our biggest advocates on regenerative right now. But um, it's very frustrating when people do part of a program or one step of a program and want to claim that they're regenerative. So I wanted third party. I think there's a, there's a demand and a need for third party. Once that third party certification is done though, all of us together have to market that so that people are educated and know what it means. I approached USDA uh, in process verified program. That program, as I understood it, is you write a program, you can write whatever program you want. You can write a program that says, I grow corn. <laughs> and, and, and USDA, you pay USDA and they'll come out and see if you're really growing corn. And if you are, they will certify that, yes, he's really growing corn. <laughs> and th that's how I understand the program. You write the program, whatever you say you're doing, they will come out and validate and verify that's what you're doing. So we wrote our program, we submitted it, and we said, we want you to come and verify that we're doing all of these steps that we're doing everything from A to C that we say we're doing in our program. They were very interested in doing it. Then we got a call from a guy with USDA within this program that said, we've got a problem. And I said, what's the problem? And he said, well, from the beginning of process verified, it's always been our policy that in your marketing, you cannot say negative or derogative uh, things about any other form of agriculture. What do you mean? Well, on your website, you talk about the degenerative effects of um, monocultures. You talk about the degenerative effects of plowing and, and soil disturbance and all this. And I said, yes, you can't say anything negative about other forms of farming, including conventional farming. Unlike marketing claims that, that you can say on your label, uh, you have to prove them and they have to be validated. <clears throat> Other than on your label, USDA doesn't get into controlling what you say in your marketing on your website. Well, with this, they do. So when I looked at the website of the companies that were participating in uh, uh, Process Verified, USDA Process Verified, it was the big companies. And somehow they got it included in the USDA Process Verified language that you cannot be a process verified producer 
if you say anything negative about other forms of agriculture. I understand the intent, but how do you describe the difference between conventional or industrial agriculture and regenerative agriculture if you don't point out the weaknesses in that other program? So that was disappointing to me. It's supported by our tax dollars, but like with some of the other certification programs we've talked about and we visited, I don't want to be associated with a program that would do that. So I'm not a fan of USDA process verified anymore. Well, let's talk about in our uh, few minutes we got left here, what's next? So we're third generation uh, organization now. <laughs> And I got I, I haven't heard anything about lamb. I haven't heard anything about uh, goat. I haven't heard about. I, I know you have other game birds there. I don't. I don't think we've we visited about that. But uh, what, what's what's next as you build out your portfolio? Because honestly, the customer is the hardest thing to acquire. Then right. once you have the customer and that relationship, delivering them more of what they're seeking is is easier to do. Yes, and you're right. The most obvious addition would be lamb. It's a, it's a grazing animal. It would fit in with our pasture raised. Uh, these are animals that have been, you know, taken for the most part, moved into industrial production by feeding them and finishing them on corn. Mm -hmm. Oh, they're their ruminants and they should be on grass and forages. So that one makes the most sense. We're very experienced at grazing and, and pasture development and, and healthy uh, nu nutrient-dense uh, plants, <clears throat> that would make the most sense. Of course, COVID put everything off. Uh, it, it's delayed everything. But to stay true to our mission, in addition to, to farming regeneratively uh, for our heritage program, now, now we have a naked program, which is basically more like commercial products but grown without antibiotics and fed an all uh, an all uh, vegetable diet with no animal byproducts. So that, and we don't, other than that, we don't do or produce any commercial commodity products. So it's at least a no antibiotic, all grain uh, fed. So in our heritage program, lamb would make the most sense. Uh, we, we've got uh, farmers that could do this. The stumbling block right now is the same thing we had with the pork. Where do we find the best lamb genetics? And I again went to um, some of our customers, our chefs, and even some butchers that we sell in Bermuda, who are, of course, British. Um, and we looked at a couple breeds uh, from uh, the UK, but we can't find the genetics to, to produce a uh, highly differentiated lamb other than what, what is available uh, through either the U.S., New Zealand, or Australia. We had thought, we thought we found the genetics a couple of times. We've done some work with it, <clears throat> but COVID hit, and with a business that was 95% dependent on restaurants, we saw the lights go out with our customers from Maine to the Caribbean all within about 10 days. So we saw a 95% drop in business <laughs> and we've been focused on staying in business and surviving. By the way, we did that by partnering with some of our distributors who also didn't want to go out of business. And several of our distributors developed a home delivery program and went to a retail direct to consumer 
marketing situation. And we converted from bulk 20 pound packs on a lot of things to one pound packs in eight pound boxes instead of a, a, a 20 pound bags, a one pound bag and eight pound box instead of a 20 or 30 pound box. So we made that that conversion and that pivot with them and it kept us in business. <clears throat> so lamb would be next. Um, another thing that might, uh, uh, that we are looking at, we'd like to do is we converted our pork producer uh, who does feed the animals corn in addition to the pasture. And it's amazing to me how much uh, forage the pasture pork will eat if they have good forage. And we put a few turnips and we put a few radishes out there and they, they root and, and these keep them from tearing the, the pastures up. So keeping, keeping the, uh, the pastures healthy, but it bothered me because of the corn we were using and not only that it was GMO, but you may know this, the genetics of our corn, particularly livestock corn over the years has changed too. And it's changed not for the benefit of the animal, but it's changed so that it can be stored longer. And that has some negative Im implications to the, to the uh, animal. So what we, once we prove the regenerative uh, farming work to our grower, uh, he raises the corn and soybeans that go into the diet for the pig. So we got him to convert to a, an older genetics of corn that is that is not a Monsanto uh, GMO. So he's been doing that now for two, well, going into three years now. And again, you know, the seed company that was a Monsanto dealer warned him about how much he was going to suffer with yield, that his yield was going to drop and he was going to lose money by making this conversion. So again, I had to step in and guarantee him whatever he lost, I would make up for in that one season, let's try it. Because we had talked to some people that were doing non-GMO corn on regenerative land, and they were meeting or beating their old uh, yields. So as it turned out, I didn't write a check for anything. He actually exceeded the all-county yield on corn, uh, and I attribute that to, to regenerative farming. So We've got a better corn now that's going into this pig and, and it's all non-GMO. So we'd like to move that program into our poultry, our heritage poultry, the turkeys and the chickens and the, uh, and the guineas. Uh, so uh, the next thing may be to find in some of these small farming communities where we have farms, a feed mill that still has equipment in it so that we could grind our own, own corn. The farmer that raises the pork for us has a small meal on his farm. So the feed that is fed to the pigs, in addition to the forage they consume on the farm, is actually grown on the farm with this older breed of corn that is non-GMO, and he mills it on the farm and is fed to the pigs. The small meal that he has will is just taking care of the pigs. So we'd like to, we'd like to, I don't want to be in the feed business, but, you know, at our scale, uh, we really don't have access to, to be able to take this better corn, non-GMO corn, and, and give it to our milling company 
and have them mill it. It's it's not large enough, and it's also they have no way of starting and stopping the production. So there would probably be some commingling of the other seed in it. So that's not high the highest on our on our uh, priority list, but it would be to to produce uh, this this corn uh, for for our poultry. Sounds like some great things to look at. I, uh, I really appreciate the thought there and, and you can certainly get it done. And, and, uh, it's just a matter of, I, I think you've done things before in the past that, uh, may not look the greatest on the, on the per unit or on the, on the per, uh, on the turn basis, but in the long run, it's going to give you better flavor. Um, right. so the non-GMO, we can have a conversation offline here, but, uh, there's certainly some things in there that are going to aid in, uh, in digestion tract and, and, uh, absorption and those kind of things. So, well, what a little bit of research I've done on that is not so much, so much the fact that it's, it, that, that it, it is a roundup ready product. It's also where the genetics of that seed have changed over the years. Like I tend to believe from what I've read that the celiac disease, uh, has probably come more from, uh, not from wheat, but from the way the, the, the type of wheat that's being grown and how it's processed. So I may be wrong on that, but, but going back to these old world breeds of, of uh, corn makes sense to me for going back to old world breeds of animals. Yep. It's fascinating that the latest and greatest is old. Right. Well, we have a saying that all of these things that industrial agriculture was supposed to bring us the positive things of increased production and lower costs and feed the world have had some unforeseen negative consequences that we didn't know about at the time. You're exactly right. And the nice part is switching back to regenerative. There's some nice unintended benefits too. So right. we're looking yeah. forward to it. Thank you for all the hard work that you and your team are doing there, Ron, and, and leading farmers and educating chefs and, and consumers, the pivot that you made here during COVID uh, to keep successful. And uh, I wish you the best as you, as you move forward and, and bring on new proteins and new markets and, and keep growing and, and spreading the message. Well, thank you very much for an opportunity to get the message out. That's what our Celebrate Meat program is all about, is trying to leverage the, our social media with all of our chefs' social media to try to get the word out on what regenerative agriculture is and why it's so important. So, as you know, and what you're doing in the podcast, it's educating, 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 and, and it's an ongoing process. It never ends. And I'll say that about regenerative, too. Uh, we like to say that regenerative is not a destination. It is an ongoing journey. Mm -hmm. You get one thing done and you continue to go and your land will tell you what needs to be done. And it's only about a six inch journey, though. Right. It's right. the distance between your ears. Right. That's the, right. That's the biggest, uh, that's the biggest journey of regenerative is changing minds. So the bit, and with farmers recruiting farmers and trying to get farmers to try it. Now we have data where we can say we have one, uh, we have one farm that in the first year saved over a hundred thousand dollars in input costs. And this is real. Mm -hmm. It's hard for them to believe, but you know, once you get them going on it, they won't, they'll never go back to conventional agriculture. That's a great way to end it. I appreciate it, Ron. Thank you so much for your time today and uh, look forward to continued success there at Joyce Farms. You're certainly welcome and keep pushing the regenerative uh, information. Thank you.
What a great discussion. As you can hear, Joyce Farms is passionate about regenerative agriculture and how those practices produce flavorful, nutritious proteins while protecting animal welfare and contributing positively to the environment. It's just one more example of how we can really make these changes and do the next right thing. And as always, if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on the links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.